Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, the podcast from Hell of Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Like our recent episode with sisters Regina and Raina King about the why behind their production company, Royal Ties. We have such a huge love for storytelling without walls, without barriers. Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. This week, I talked to Tiffany Haddish in a hilarious, deep, thoughtful interview where we dive into family trauma, grief, sobriety, love, and dating. I got a big heart. And I'm very forgiving, but like, don't abuse it. It's been abused enough. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss this one. Pete Buttigieg was not a traditional candidate for president because he's so young, because he's a veteran, and because he was the mayor of a small city. He made history because he's married to another man. On this episode of the Carlos Watson Show podcast, Mayor Pete talks about his journey to coming out and the bond he found with supporters in unexpected places. Mayor, I'm going to jump into it by welcoming you to the show. Uh, Thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having me. Good to be with you. Um, Mayor, let me start with the name, Mayor Pete. Uh, I can assume how that happened, but why don't you tell me who was the first one to call you Mayor Pete and... How did it stick? I'm not sure where it first came from. My predecessor had a comparatively easier to pronounce name, but uh, they knew him as Mayor Steve. So I guess it was just kind of the local tradition. There was a mayor in Madison, Wisconsin, Dave Chislevich, another just not a lot of vowels in there. Uh, and I, I think they just called him Mayor Dave. So I don't know, it just kind of picked up and uh, uh, seems like it's uh, uh, sticking with me past my mayor days, which is uh, fine by me. Uh, you know, I, I absolutely, uh, I absolutely love that. Uh, any other nicknames that you picked up uh, along the campaign trail over the last two years? Uh, no repeatable ones. <laughs> <laughs> no, people kept it pretty, pretty simple. Yeah. And and tell me a little bit about the look because it was it was nice seeing you come on screen, and I realize that you're one of the few people I've consistently seen with a certain kind of look. Almost reminds me back in the day, Lamar Alexander had the wonderful kind of plaid shirt, and so I would always kind of recognize him. How did you decide that, that it was the, uh, the clean white shirt and the tie? You know, it's funny. I don't remember any meeting where we said, you know, all right, of all the different looks, let's do the white shirt. What color tie probably ought to be blue. I think I, think I started campaigning this way. I, I think I was relieved. You know, when you're mayor, you know, if you're cutting a ribbon or signing a bill, you kind of got to have the full suit. And I appreciated that, you know, campaigning was at least a little more laid back. And then uh, somewhere along the line, it became a thing. It, it got to where in our campaign memos, uh, it would just, uh, there'd just be a note on there saying uniform. And if it said to be in uniform, that meant, you know, my blue tie, my white shirt. <laughs> if I had to be in anything different, they'd let me know. 
I love that. I love that so much. So, so knowing that you've loved politics most of your life, uh, what was the most interesting thing that you learned actually running for president? Because again, I'm sure you studied it from every possible angle. You'd run for office several times. You'd written essays as a kid about them, but yet actually getting a chance to do it is one of the few things, one of the things that few people ever get a chance to do. What would you go back and tell younger Pete? Like, here are the two things that are going to surprise you most about actually running for president. I mean, it's it's almost a, an out of body experience. It's it's hard to describe it. When you're in it, you're just going. You don't even have time to reflect. But you uh, hopefully have a great team around you who make sure that uh, you make the most of your time on anything from policy to you know getting enough uh, TV appearances in in a day. Uh, I think the the really striking thing is the constant motion. So you're in the whole country at once. You know, we have some days where we were maybe in four states in the same day. And at the same time, you could kind of see, I guess because you were moving around so much, you could see what didn't change. You could see that the, some of the same things were on people's minds, uh, even if you were campaigning in New Hampshire and, and, and Nevada on the same day. And you would begin to notice that there was sometimes a little daylight between the things that uh, commentators would ask you about the most and the things that voters would ask you about the most. Uh, I found that the, the press was usually more interested in uh, drama among Democrats, the kind of blow-by-blow, uh, blow, the, the horse race. Um, if there was one issue that I heard way more about from voters than it was from reporters, it was mental health. I heard about that everywhere I went. And, uh, you know, the other thing you really feel, I mean, I've always believed it, but you really feel it when you're campaigning for president, is how personal politics is. Not personal in the sense of the candidates uh, being personal, uh, you know, toward each other. I mean, like, people know how political decisions affect their lives. And different things are at stake for different people. But whether it's your health care or, or your marriage or your job, uh, you know, people are pretty smart about how the decisions that are being uh, debated and batted around as talking points wind up hitting home, literally in their lives. And you really, you feel that when you're in an environment, like when you're shaking hands along a rope line with hundreds of people after you speak. And when somebody comes up to tell you something and you're running for president, whatever it is they're going to tell you is probably the most important thing going on in their life that they think uh, leadership or the government could do something about. And you, you feel that every day. Huh. Wow. That, that is, um, uh, that's a really unusual space to be in. I'm I, I'm, I'm reminded when you say it, my sister's a therapist, I'm the grandson of a minister, and there are a few people in our lives who we really trust when we're at crisis points. And, and I can imagine that for some window of time, people in these places could look to a political leader and hope that they may be able to step in and, uh, and do something uh, uh, valuable. Um, uh, Mayor Pete, take me back to your actual run um, what did you get right? I mean, kind of narrate a little bit for me. Play a little Michael Beschloss, uh, the historian, for me and, and do a little case study on it. Like, what are people going to say one day at the Kennedy School of Government um, when they do the case study on the campaign? Like, when did it take off? Why did it take off? What did he get right? And what would you have done differently to have gotten a different outcome? Meaning, I know you didn't run just to run. I know you ran because you thought you'd be a terrific 46th Commander-in-Chief? Well, when you first get it into your head to run for president, the, you want to 
find out whether this is just something that makes sense to you or whether uh, other people uh, agree and a critical mass of other people who would vote for you and, 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 and send money to your campaign and, and, and support you and put their, put their reputations on the line. You know, when somebody says, especially if you're a long shot candidate, uh, which is certainly how we were perceived at the beginning, somebody says they're supporting you, even if it's on social media, they're giving something of themselves to you. They're taking a risk on your behalf even if it's just socially. And so, uh, you know, the early days of the campaign were really the days of finding out if we were alone, if it was just me and a few people around me who believed in this theory of the case, that the kind of leadership we needed was was what I had to offer that was different from what the others had to offer. Uh, or, uh, you know, whether it was just one more politician who thinks he ought to be president. And, you know, over time, we began to realize that this really was something. Uh, there was a moment in New Hampshire where we were arriving for what we thought was going to be a meet and greet. And I got there and uh, there were hundreds of people. It turned into a rally and I, I could see something was up. We had a CNN town hall uh, in Austin. I think it was in March. And the thing that really served us well then was, I think, you know, because I've been in, in and around government and politics for, for a decade but um, or more, but... You know, I hadn't been a national figure long enough maybe to form some of the habits of being too polished or, or formed. So just being myself served me really well. I think people were ready to have a more real conversation. And I think that's part of how we were able to punch above our weight class almost from the beginning and uh, took us all the way to the, the Iowa victory. Uh, of course, afterwards, you think of a million things you'd wish you'd known on day one or done differently. We had a brilliant team uh, that figured out often with, you know, kind of duct tape and chicken wire in the early days how to get things up and running. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we really needed in particular to work to introduce me to constituencies that were skeptical of newcomers and that, that I had to really explain who I was and what I was about. Uh, especially when I'm thinking about Southern black voters who had seen uh, politicians come and go, uh, often been taken for granted in our party. And where if I had it to do over again, I would have had more voices from right here in South Bend, black voices in particular, uh, on, on the trail with me. Because if I had gotten the same support in uh, South Carolina from black voters that I did from black voters in South Bend, uh, who knows, we might have won. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, I look back at, at so many moments and, and, uh, and so many people in the campaign uh, with uh, uh, you know, a great deal of pride uh, and uh, a great deal of gratitude uh, for, for what we were able to do. But uh, you know, even now, uh, having stepped off the campaign trail for nearly uh, the, well, about a half a year, uh, I'm still processing it and putting it all together and thinking about what I've learned. Did you ever read the book, uh, What It Takes, uh, about the 1988 presidential campaign? So that is a brick of a book. It's one of many books that I have to admit I have, but that doesn't mean I've read it. Uh, I've dipped into it and it's an extraordinary, yeah, it's an extraordinary, what is it, like a 1,500 pages or something? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, there were a couple of moments where I wanted to start to read it uh, during the campaign and then I realized this is way too close to home. I, uh, the only politics, uh, the only political book I read about during the campaign was about Lincoln uh, because 150 years was enough removal that I, I didn't feel like I was uh, kind of, you know, uh, swimming in my own waters even when I picked up a book. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, because you guys had such an interesting primary when I think about it. I was talking to Beto uh, earlier this week, and I talked to Andrew Yang uh, a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, a couple of things stood out for me. That CNN town hall was the moment when I think you took 
the long shot up and comer mantle away from Beto. I thought there was something in that and there was something in the way that you talked about policy that allowed people to grab a hold of you and to feel like there was something there. And I felt like that was the first light switch moment. And then the other piece that I thought about as I saw your campaign uh, rise and go is I wondered a little bit about Iowa, whether with all of the drama around the caucuses itself and the reporting and what have you, if you should have been more aggressive in declaring yourself the unequivocal winner, if you were too nuanced, too moderated, too professorial uh, in that, and if you had more robustly said, I won this thing and had gotten all the things that came with that, whether some of those skeptical voters could have seen you differently, could have heard you differently in the following uh, primaries and caucuses. How do, you, how do you hear that? How do you hear that potential critique or, or question? I wonder, I mean, when you make a choice, you always get it from all sides, right? So we got blown up by a lot of people who said that, you know, I, I couldn't even say that we were victorious, which I felt we very much were even as the numbers were coming in, uh, because that was presumptuous. Uh, less often have I heard the other, the other side, although I think it's an interesting point. Uh, look, the truth was, we, we knew certain things that night. We knew that, that our performance was an incredible victory. And we knew that we seemed to be ahead. But, you know, you really need somebody else to, to call it and certify it. We needed the Iowa Democratic Party to say, okay, these are the numbers, these are the counts, uh, and Pete's the winner. And it just didn't come. At least it didn't come that night. Uh, and I, I often wonder, you know, if it had happened uh, that night or the next day instead of weeks later that they finally certified it, uh, what effect that might have had. But you also, you know, the, the, the first really uh, memorable political advice I got from, from a, a political figure I looked up to was uh, Joe Kernan. He recently passed away, but he was the mayor here in South Bend, and then he was governor. And when I was just working up the courage to run for mayor as a 29-year-old, I, I got him to, uh, he agreed to have lunch with me and, and, and uh, um, give me a little bit of advice. And when I finally you know, I asked him, you know, what do you, what do you think? Uh, I'm thinking I might run for mayor. He stared at this basket of french fries for a good minute and then he just looked up to me and he said you know so much in politics is outside of your control and you just don't know so no matter how much you prepare no matter how much work you do no matter how brilliant your team is there's some moments that come along that uh just have whatever effect they're going to have and one thing that you know i was ready to win iowa i was ready to lose iowa i was not ready to win iowa and be unable to have it confirmed for a matter of weeks yeah, well, you know, I often uh, think in the past, I've talked to Rick Santorum, who you recall in 2012 actually won Iowa, but by the time that that got properly certified, the whole conversation had moved on, and you think about how different it could have been for him or for Governor Romney, uh, now Senator Romney, if in fact um, uh, that announcement had been made that night, and so little differences matter. Um, talk to me, uh, Mayor Pete, if you don't mind, a little bit about the decision to endorse uh, uh, Vice President Biden, because I thought that that your former boyhood hero, Bernie Sanders, was 48 hours away from becoming the nominee, which would have been as wildly improbable as anything we've seen in politics, except in the last 10 years, in which we saw, you know, yourself and Obama and Trump and a number of, of really improbable, uh, uh, strong uh, uh, showings. But talk to me about how that came together. Was that something that Vice President Biden 
came to you and Senator Klobuchar and uh, and Representative O'Rourke, or how did that come about? Uh, no, it was, it was really from within. Uh, you know what was going on in in those days, especially that across that that weekend uh, where I uh, made that decision was you know, we were looking at the math, and I realized that uh, it was just an impossibly steep uh, path to victory for me. And then I began to realize that uh, you know I was having an effect uh, just by being in the race or getting out of it, and how I got out of it, and who I backed. All of those were uh, things that I had to take seriously as a, as a kind of responsibility. And I thought back to what motivated me to run in the first place, and that was a desire to uh, unify, to to bring the party together, and to defeat Donald Trump. And those same things that motivated me to get in the race, there was a certain point where. Uh, in the service of those higher goals, I had to get out of the race. And then I realized I had to not just get out of the race, but I had to step forward quickly at, at that moment when so much was in the air and explain to my supporters and, and share with the country where I stood. And even though, uh, you know, Vice President Biden and I uh, are obviously very different messengers, but one of the things that really struck me from day one of his campaign was his vocabulary about the soul of the nation, his understanding that uh, this is a moral as well as a policy office. That was something that in many ways rhymed with my own campaign, even though we talked about it differently. My focus was on belonging, a crisis of belonging in this country. And I tried to speak to that just as often as I spoke to uh, you know, detailed policy ideas like uh, why I thought a public option retirement plan uh, was a good idea, or what we needed to do about, uh, about the Middle East. And uh, I could see that, that resonance. And I, I knew that I had to speak up about that at a moment that it could have impact. So, uh, you know, once I made that decision, it was just a matter of sharing that and uh, uh, acting fast. They had a, a pretty quick, they had a plane ready to take me to Texas. And uh, uh, I, I spoke out that very next day after I dropped out. And, and did you coordinate with the other candidates? Because I, I felt like if it had just been one person, I don't know if it would have been as impactful. But I felt like that combined endorsement was, in my mind, the most impactful endorsement I've seen in politics, other than second only to Oprah Winfrey backing a young Barack Obama. I thought in modern politics, that was the most impactful in terms of it actually shifted the course, I think, of the outcome. Did you guys coordinate that once you had decided, or how did that work? No, there was no room or, or, or even uh, you know a round of phone calls to coordinate it all. Uh, other than that, of course, we we wanted to coordinate with the Biden campaign how to make sure that uh, um, that, that, that I shared uh, my endorsement in the right way. Uh, but what I do think was probably going on is a lot of us going through the same process at the same time, and it's a tough place to be. You know, it's if you put everything you've got into running, and then suddenly you realize it's not going to happen, and uh, you know, the, the hours that are playing out in front of you might be the hours where you could make the biggest difference. And you think, what well, you know, how do I use that for the most good? So uh, I imagine everybody was kind of going through that same process at the same time for the same reasons that I was. Uh, I do think it was very powerful for so many of us to uh, speak out really within a couple of days or even within hours of each other and say that, that, that we felt it was time for the party to come behind, uh, to come together behind Joe Biden and put all our energy into getting him into the White House and defeating Donald Trump. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. 
But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Do you love Selena? Like, really love Whether you saw her live, saw the movie as a kid, or saw her looks all over TikTok, there's no shortage of reasons to stan the Queen of Tejano. And stan, we do over three whole episodes of our podcast, Becoming an Icon. We're reminiscing as lifelong Selena fans, sharing hot takes and telling her story. Listen to Becoming an Icon on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Becoming an Icon. Mayor Pete, you, you did something else that I haven't heard anyone give you public credit for, but you were the first person in public life that I heard use the phrase systemic racism. You were the first probably non-black person in public life on a campaign trail who wasn't a professor in an academic institution. And I remember being surprised because that's not very kind of running for office language. I mean, that was important and I was very glad to hear it. And obviously it, 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 it presaged the conversation that we've been having over the last six months. But how did you get there? Because that's not a phrase that I was used to hearing from other politicians, candidly white, black, Latino, or Asian. And I remember hearing it from you in 2019. And I felt like I heard it from you relatively early. A- am I wrong that, that you were one of the early ones to begin using that phrase? And what brought you to it? I, th- I think that's right. And, and you know, the, one of the things I'm proudest of that the campaign developed was called the Frederick Douglass Plan. And it was a plan to tackle systemic racism. And it grew out of several things. First of all, uh, I should say, it's, it's not like I sat in a room and thought this up. Uh, it was uh, a plan that was shaped by mainly black voices uh, on the campaign and, and outside of the campaign, but who we turned to for advice. Because, of course, I knew I had a certain perspective and I also lacked uh, a certain p- perspective and lived experience. And we wanted to put together something that was really an answer. 
you know, being in South Bend, being a white mayor of a diverse community that had had some horrible struggles with racial injustice uh, economically in uh, uh, concerns in, in, in policing, um, I knew that this was going to be about more than just uh, an individual policy. And I'd also seen all the ways that, you know, just trying to rub out a, a racist policy and replace it with a neutral one wasn't going to be enough. But the racism is systemic. And that's something that I think has been really hard, uh, especially, frankly, among white, uh, uh, well-intentioned white people, uh, for people to get their arms around. Uh, but there needs to be a way for all of us as a country, but especially among white people, which is where most of the change has to happen, to grapple with the fact that there's more to the racism that we're all mixed up in than just a, 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 a character flaw in individuals. And there's also more to fixing it than just defeating the likes of the KKK. Um, and so that, that systemic quality to it is so interwoven in the way America works. But I also felt very much that it could be uh, it could be rooted out through policy because policy was how we got here. Right? A series of, of racist policies that accumulated over centuries uh, brought us to this point. And so we had to talk about it in a, in a comprehensive way. Every time here in South Bend, we sat down to talk about an issue like racial justice and policing. By the end, we were talking not only about that, but about issues of economic empowerment. And so I felt it's not that I solved it. It's not that anybody has uh, at a local level, but it was that seeing that interconnectedness let me know that I had an obligation to speak to that. And I'm, I'm glad that we did. Mayor Pete, talk about being the first serious gay candidate for the presidency. Did you come into that? I mean, it, may, it sounds almost silly to ask you if you came into that really aware of it. I'm sure you did. But, 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 but how much did you think about it? And how did it play out for you personally on the campaign trail? Big issue, small issue, issue that you expected to play out this way, but it really played out that way. Talk a little bit about, about, about that. Yeah, you know, obviously we, we knew it would be uh, on a lot of people's minds. And we knew it pre would present some, some unique challenges and saw that, you know, from some of my first campaign appearances where, uh, you know, uh, there were anti-LGBT uh, demonstrators intervening in events. And it's, it's one thing if, if, if there are demonstrators because they disagree with you on a policy. It's another because they just disagree with, you know, they, don't, they can't accept what you are. Uh, and at the same time, you know, what I found was that this fact about our campaign was actually part of what it made it empowering for a lot of people. And I think by being able to talk about the, the search and the struggle for belonging and, and the particular version of it that I lived, it actually helped us reach a lot of other people who uh, maybe were, had something else on their mind. Uh, I, I think it, it helped us connect, you know, not to compare struggles, they're all different, but, uh, but to connect with a lot of different people who are, who are uh, in that, that struggle for belonging in some way, shape, or form. You know, the balance for me was I didn't set out to be the gay president or the president of the gay United States. I want to be a president and a candidate for everyone. And at the same time, I, I knew it was important to uh, speak to uh, my identity and, and my experience. Uh, and I was excited for the country to get to know Chasten, who uh, was somebody who, uh, my husband, who uh, a lot of people fall in love with and I think uh, really drew a lot of people to, to our campaign too. The most touching things were the encounters I would have sometimes with kids, teenagers, who would you know, uh, barely be able to speak when, when they met me or sometimes would confide in me something they hadn't told others and feeling that responsibility. When a, when a kid was so much on the line, 
quietly comes out to you while shaking your hand on a road or passes you a note. And you're just thinking about what that kid might be up against. And all the way through to people my, my parents' age who, uh, and I remember one guy coming up to me in an airport and he shook my hand and was unable to speak and tears are coming to his eyes and tears are coming to my eyes. And we didn't have to, there was an entire conversation that happened without either one of us speaking. Uh, and he, and then he went on his way, uh, just, just with his handshake. Uh, and you could feel what that meant. And, you know, I, I wish that I'd been able as a, as a teenager here in Indiana to, to, to see that, but I also know that I'm standing on the shoulders of people uh, who stepped forward uh, and, and ran or, or did other things. And hopefully it makes it that much easier for the next kid who comes along. What was it like for you as a kid um, uh, who who hadn't come out yet, teenager? Um, I don't want to put words on you, so I'm leaving it pretty open ended. But 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 what was it? Was it was it an active wrestling? Was was there a struggle? Was it what what was it like for you? I think it could best be described as a very low level, deep civil war inside. And, you know, I knew that I was different, but I wasn't prepared to come out even to myself when I was a teenager. Uh, it felt like if I did, if I even began to ask myself those questions, I would be taking everything else that, that, uh, that, that I cared about in, in life on the outside and, and setting it on fire. So I just didn't go there. And uh, I know that, that that's the story for a lot of people. A lot of people have a very different story. You know, again, my husband, Chaston, uh, he, by the age of 17 or 18, uh, understood that he was gay and understood that he couldn't uh, uh, claim otherwise and uh, had a very tough experience uh, in many ways coming out. Um, but uh, it's, uh, you know, it's different for everybody and you're ready when you're ready. Uh, but I hope that uh, each passing year, it also becomes less and less of a thing. You know, straight people don't have to come out. <laughs> so I remember thinking as I was preparing to do, why, you know, why, why do we have to, why is it a thing when we do? Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think back to what it was like, uh, uh, just trying not to even look into that part of my heart, uh, I think, because I was afraid of what I might see there. Well, what made you finally come out? What made you finally do it? You know, the thing that put me over the edge was the deployment. You know, the, the truth was, uh, I didn't really feel how much I was missing in life, not having a romantic life once I'd reached the point in my 20s where I knew that dating women was not uh, going to work for me, uh, but I wasn't prepared to come out. Um, I was so busy being mayor that it just filled my days. And then I had this experience as a mayor, I was, I was uh, uh, deployed uh, because I was also a reservist. And I sat down, as you do when you, when you go to a, a war zone, and, and I had to write a letter to, uh, uh, you know, it just literally says just in case, it's still in my desk drawer. Uh, obviously, thankfully, uh, that letter, letter never needed to be opened. But I wrote that, that letter that tells your loved ones what, what you uh, want them to know. Uh, and actually, I didn't write about being gay there either. But uh, I wrote about how full of a life I'd had. And yet I realized, uh, certainly by the time I left and, and absolutely by the time I came back, that, you know, I'm in my 30s. I'm in a position of responsibility. I'm the mayor of a city. I've been to war and back. I'm a, I'm a grown-ass man with no idea what it's like to fall in love. And the idea that I could have lost my life halfway around the world uh, and gone to my grave not knowing what it was like to be in love, I just realized that was not that was no way to live. And so then I knew it was time, and it was just a matter of, figuring out how to do it, which was not a simple thing for a mayor in 
Indiana in, uh, while Mike Pence was the governor. But uh, w- within a year, I'd, I'd figured it out. Pretty soon after that, I met Chaston, and, and the rest is history, I guess. How did you, what made you fall for Chaston? Why, uh, why, why did he win your heart? Well, it started with a smile. As soon as I saw his picture, uh, I, uh, I knew I wanted to meet him. And then I did, and there was just this kind of wit about him. Uh, and uh, he's somebody who knows exactly who he is. And he's somebody who just has this, this unbelievable heart. And I really won the lottery uh, because I was, I was pretty new to dating, uh, to dating men anyway. Uh, and, uh, you know, had been just in the, uh, just out on the cold, in the penalty box, I guess, for, for years. And, and uh, really lucked out in the pretty soon into my process of coming out, I met him and just, uh, you know, it just felt, I just liked who I was when I was around him and I, I liked who he was. And um, it's, uh, you know, he didn't ask for politics. He didn't come, he, he, he's a teacher, um, uh, first in, in his family to complete college. Uh, and as he puts it, always saw politics as something that kind of happened to him and his family, not something he could be part of. But uh, sure enough, reluctantly, as he entered that, that, that world with me, because it was, I was a package deal, um, and, and that life uh, yeah, had to be something he had to grow into. It turned out that, that he's, just a, he's just really good at it. And in particular, he's, he's really attuned to the fact that uh, as a candidate, and certainly when you're in office as a, as a mayor, part of what you can do is just, just make people feel better. Uh, make people feel accepted, uh, let people know you see them. He was very alive to that and I think brought fresh eyes to that when I'd been you know, doing this job for years. And to this day, I, I think it really helps me see that side of public life. I love hearing that. I love love stories. I love even hearing the way you talk about him. Uh, so um, uh, so I, I, love, I love hearing that as well. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Do you love Selena? Like, really love? Whether you saw her live, saw the movie as a kid, or saw her looks all over TikTok, there's no shortage of reasons to stan the Queen of Tejano. And Stan, we do over three whole episodes of our podcast, Becoming an Icon. We're reminiscing as lifelong Selena fans, sharing hot takes and telling her story. Listen to Becoming an Icon on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Becoming an Icon. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, 
We have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Pete, tell me a little bit about your book. Uh, I know you've taken a faculty position at Notre Dame, so kind of following in your dad's footsteps. So uh, I love keeping it in the family, which is uh, which is good. And and now you've got uh, yet another book uh, coming out. Tell me a little bit about what moved you to write the book, and and what are kind of some of the key takeaways uh, in in the book. Trust. Yeah, so I'm I'm uh, joining a uh, an institute at the University of Notre Dame that draws uh, faculty for one year from every different field and from around the world. Uh, and every year they focus on a particular question or issue, and this year it's trust. Uh, so that's also been the subject of my book, which will come out in October. It's called Trust. I thought it was important for this book to come out before the election because I want to start some conversations about what's at stake in the fact that political and social trust in our country have been falling for about 50 years. In other words, uh, people's trust that the government will do the right thing all or most of the time, and even our trust in each other. And this has profound and dangerous consequences. One of them, of course, is if you live in a democracy, democracies rest on a foundation of trust, the trust that your vote will be counted, uh, the the trust that you put in one another, even the trust that leaders or the system uh, requires leaders to put in the public uh, to make the best hiring and firing decisions over who ought to be in charge. But also there are more immediate and sometimes lethal uh, dimensions to what happens when there's a lack of trust. And a simple example of that is we're seeing some research right now that says that uh, actually it's a minority of Americans who are sure they would get a vaccine for COVID, even if one were available. Think about what that means. Uh, There's a a chunk who say that they wouldn't and a number uh, as well who say that they're not sure. In this era of conspiracy theories, a shockingly large percentage of the American people Uh, said that they think that the vaccine uh, had microchips connected to Bill Gates. I mean, there's some wild stuff going on on far-right media. Uh, But also, of course, if we're thinking about trust in medicine, there are some very real reasons why, for example, black Americans are skeptical uh, in a system that has not treated them equally, where they are more vulnerable. Uh, And so all of these issues of uh, uh, trust and credibility in institutions and in experts in science, even trust that we're living in a shared reality. These are actually life and death questions. And uh, I wanted to start a conversation about that with, uh, uh, with the, the short book that I'll have coming out in October. I, I love that conversation. I think it's important. I think in so many cases, you can't deal with difficult things, be it a recession, uh, be it systemic racism, uh, uh, be it science, if there's not a foundation of trust. You'll spend all your time just trying to get to first base. Um, Mayor, I'm going to move a little quickly just because I know our time is short, and so I want to capture a couple of different things. I know foreign policy is a topic you love. Uh, Tell me about two or three of the most interesting places in the world. 
either because you think there's opportunity, because there's a big conversation happening there, because they're representative of somewhere we're going, whether they're a threat. But where are two or three of the places that really capture your attention? And if you were teaching a, uh, a national class, you would focus on these two or three places. Uh, well, certainly we've got to look at China uh, as a strategic competitor, uh, as the, the world's most populous country, an enormous economy. Uh, and uh, it, it can feel like the U.S. is on a collision course with China, but it's actually very complicated, the ways that we're interdependent uh, and the ways that we're in tension. And we've got to really be ready for what I think is a major challenge, a, a use of technology there for the perfection of authoritarianism. Uh, and at the same time, uh, the reality that issues like climate change and, and others are going to be very difficult to tackle if we can't uh, form some level of cooperation or trust with other countries, including China. So that's one area I would look. Another is sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, the countries uh, on the continent are all uh, very different and diverse, uh, but uh, most of them have exceptionally young and growing populations. And I think a lot of uh, uh, the uh, global action is shifting. Uh, in the direction of Africa over the course of this century. And uh, the U.S. really needs to be engaging with African countries, I think, a lot more intentionally. The third, I would say, is uh, this isn't a particular geography, but places that are electing leaders from a new generation, uh, whether it's uh, France, where the current president was 39 when he got elected, uh, New Zealand, uh, whose uh, pr uh, prime minister, Jacinda Ardern, has been, I think, one of the most interesting and effective leaders in the world on everything from the aftermath of gun violence to dealing with the pandemic. In other words, uh, a lot of the things where the U.S. is failing. Uh, and she's, uh, I think, was even younger. I'm not sure if she's 40 yet. Uh, from El Salvador to Ethiopia, uh, we've seen an, a new generation of leaders step forward. Uh, even the ones that uh, uh, that were in a lot of tension right now, from Kim Jong-un to uh, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, uh, are coming from a new generation. And I think that's really something to watch. Um, uh, I love that. And I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave that there, even though I'd love to dig into it because I love foreign policy and I'd love to go deeper with you. But the, the one little button I'll ask you there is give me a country, an up and coming country, a rising country that you think is going to do well over the next 10, 20 years. And maybe it's sub-Saharan Africa. Maybe it's one of the others where you've respected the leader and you've just mentioned. But, but give me one or two countries, specific countries to keep my eye on that may go from the margins to kind of one of the leading countries over the next 20 years? Hmm. Well, there are so many places to, to look. I mean, again, in, in the English-speaking world, it's fascinating to see uh, New Zealand's approach, a place we think of as, I think, very uh, similar to us, even though we don't know much about uh, the, this country that's, uh, that's very different and, and has a very different story. Uh, any number of, of uh, uh, countries on the African continent, I think, really uh, need attention. I'm, I'm uh, interested, one of my colleagues in Notre Dame is a specialist on Rwanda. They are now a generation beyond the experience of uh, the Rwandan genocide and uh, going through a process of reintegration uh, for a lot of people who uh, went to prison uh, after that and are returning to uh, uh, communities, sometimes living side by side uh, with uh, families and, and people uh, who they harmed. Uh, watching that process from the perspective of trust, but also uh, just knowing the level of urgency around establishing different patterns of peace building uh, for this coming century, I think will be uh, really important and really interesting, uh, hugely challenging, but not without a great deal of hope as well. Um, uh, Mayor Pete, I'm going to switch to rapid fire for a quick moment, if you don't mind, and, and, and then I'll wrap up after the rapid fire. So a couple of, of different questions. Um, the most interesting celebrity who you met or got to know while running for president? Oh, wow. Um, there are so many. The problem is you'd meet him for like a few seconds. 
uh, and then uh, you know not get to uh, uh, not get to really talk to them and get to know them well. I remember meeting uh, uh, meeting uh, uh, President Carter. I'm talking about political celebrities now, I guess. Uh, getting to know President Carter, uh, getting to know John Lewis. Uh, uh, outside of the political sphere, um, uh, meeting Robert De Niro was pretty uh, pretty amazing. Just to, uh, to turn around, he was there uh, at an event. Um, our country's produced so many profoundly interesting people, and one of the joys of running for president, you get to meet so many of them. But the thing is, you don't get to talk to them for long. Kevin Costner supported our campaign uh, and was uh, was wonderful uh, out on the uh, out on the trail. And uh, somebody else, you just feel like you're meeting a, a legend. Uh, and uh, but as it is when you meet your political legends, uh, they're uh, they're human beings. L- love that. Um, next question: Are you now, or have you ever been a spy? Well, I was a, a Navy intelligence officer, but uh, uh, I was pretty transparent about that, so I don't think that counts as a spy. Interesting. Did you do spy-like work? Was there a little 007 in you while you were uh, while you were doing that work? Honestly, the, the most uh, daring things I, I did in, in that job was uh, driving uh, uh, colleagues and, and sometimes equipment uh, around the city of Kabul. The majority of your work is a naval intelligence, at least my work as a Navy intelligence officer was uh, at a computer t- terminal and uh, not terribly sexy. What's the most interesting thing you've learned about change? I mean, so often people feel, similar to what Chaston said, that change happens to people as opposed to getting to be a change agent. What's the most interesting thing you've learned about being a change agent as opposed to being someone who change happens to? Hmm, I, I guess you're always you're always both, right? Um, the the biggest thing I've learned is that uh, you never know where you're gonna uh, where a word you say or a thing you do or connection you form is gonna matter, and so you have to be alive to everything that's happening around you. Sometimes it's the slightest word that got me in the most trouble or uh, wound up uh, being one of the most uh, positive things in the campaign. Uh, what scares you? What's happening to our democracy? Uh, you know, you, it's not just there forever. Like, you have to actually actively keep it up. The U.S. is the most consequential democracy on Earth since the days of the Athenians, and our democracy is pretty rickety right now. It scares me what would happen if we lose that. Your favorite music? Uh, my tastes are pretty eclectic. I'm kind of rediscovering what I used to listen to as a teenager when guitar was my focus. So I just got back to Jimi Hendrix for the first time in a long time, and it's just uh, the the improvisation that he played during Woodstock uh, is still, I think, one of the most amazing few minutes of music ever recorded. Do you plan on being a dad? Yeah, we do. We're, uh, uh, we're taking steps in that direction, and uh, I'm excited. Uh, a little scared <laughs> by that, too. It's an enormous responsibility, but uh, excited about the possibility and, and excited to see Chaston be a father, too. And what kind of dad would Mayor Pete be? Are you a dad on TikTok? Are you a dad who's a stern? Uh, what kind of dad should we expect you to be? I'd like to think I'd be the cool dad. I'm sure the reverse is true, but uh, I think I'll just focus on hopefully being a good one. Last couple of questions. Uh, tell me a little bit about dreaming fearlessly. You know, so often people do want to dream, but you know how constricted that can be, how afraid people can be of doing that. What have you learned about not only dreaming fearlessly, but bringing those dreams alive? It's that uh, uh, the only way to know is to do things. And, 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 you know, you dream something one moment and then you take one step and you're closer to it. Uh, the, the people we admire, the people who we look up to, the people who run the world, um, they're not on some different plane of existence uh, than anyone else. And you discover that as you begin to find yourself uh, in, in, in these circles. Uh, it's just human beings. The world is the most impressive person you know of is a human being. And the world is full of human beings trying to get things done. And it's all the more reason when you have a dream to just make a plan and go out there and try to make it happen. 
And Pete, what would surprise people about you? Even people who feel like they've followed you closely, they've gotten to know you a little bit. What would still surprise them if they spent real time with you? I don't know. It's it's almost not for me to say. I, I, I'd like to think people would would find that I'm, I'm uh, pretty, uh, uh, you know, just pretty regular in my approach to the world, and and uh, you know, and much more used to just being Pete and uh, you know, uh, puttering around the house and doing chores and. Uh, uh, driving to work than, than I am, you know, presidential candidate, uh, Mayor Pete, that, that's been in this kind of uh, otherworldly experience for the last year and a half. But uh, that's probably a better question to ask other people than me. I love it. And, and final question, look ahead for me a little bit. Uh, if Joe Biden were to win, what role would you love to have in his administration? Well, I, I'd love a, a chance to return to public service, and I'm definitely going to be uh, doing everything I can to support the uh, Biden-Harris administration, whether that's uh, from a role in government or, or from the outside. But uh, I'm not letting myself get too uh, far ahead of where we are because uh, we've uh, uh, just got a matter of weeks to make sure that there is uh, a Biden presidency. And, uh, you know, right now, by the polls, we're winning and we're winning big, but uh, that should not be a reason to get comfortable or get complacent. We're going to have to work. We're going to have to push we're going to have to sprint through the tape. What state are you keeping your eye on or what for you as a canary in the coal mine, as you said, knowing that there are lots of pieces of data and lots of things could happen? As someone who knows this better than most of us, what are you watching to try and understand where this could end up? Well, of course, my own neighborhood here in the industrial Midwest is really important to watch uh, Wisconsin. Uh, seeing how the message is reaching places like uh, Wisconsin, uh, people, uh, uh, places like Michigan, Pennsylvania, uh, where there are uh, so many voters who really could go either way and so many voters of color who we need to make sure uh, we are mobilizing well. Uh, but I'm also interested in some of the southern states uh, that I think are much more competitive than they know. Uh, I'm watching North Carolina closely uh, as a place that uh, really is, I think, shifting uh, in a tectonic way that may last a generation. Uh, even places like Alaska uh, have some pretty interesting dynamics going on. When you add an independent streak and the whole scramble of things that are going on right now in our politics, uh, the map really could look very different after 2020 than it has looked in our political lifetimes. Did you say Alaska? Yeah, there's some uh, uh, very competitive uh, federal races going on right now, and uh, even the presidential race, tighter than you would think. That is absolutely fascinating. Well, I still think that the most impressive feat in modern presidential elections was 2008, President Obama winning your home state of Indiana. I still think he doesn't get enough credit for that. With all due respect to former Senator and Governor Bai, I remember talking to him, he didn't think uh, that Obama was going to win that. And so I do think surprises can happen uh, in all in all sorts of directions. Interesting. No one else has told me Alaska. I'm going to keep an eye on that. Um, Mayor Pete, please um, please promise me that you'll come back, that this won't be the, uh, the only visit to the show. I'd love to. It's a real pleasure. And uh, thank you for making the time today. I'm grateful. Same here. Great to be with you. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Carlos Watson Show podcast. If you enjoyed this interview, please leave us a rating on iTunes. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, the podcast from Hello Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Like our recent episode with sisters Regina and Raina King about the why behind their production company, Royal Ties. We have such a huge love for storytelling without walls, without barriers. Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. This week, I talked to Tiffany Haddish in a hilarious, deep, thoughtful interview where we dive into family trauma, grief, sobriety, love, and dating. I got a big heart. And I'm very forgiving, but like, don't abuse it. It's been abused enough. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss this one.